Hello, my name is Jody Lee Mock, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the kids' books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts, such as writers, teachers, and librarians, about their own favorite children's books. With today's podcast, I'm going to start off by reading the poem, Spring Saturday Morning. Uh, This was written by Arnold Adolph from his poetry book, Touch the Poem, and it was illustrated by Elisa Desimini. Uh, Arnold Adolph was born in the Bronx in 1935, and he's been writing poetry for children for several decades. And in 1988, the National Council of Teachers of English gave Arnold the Award for Excellence in Poetry for Children. Some of his poetry books include Street Music, Roots and Blues, Outside Inside, and Today We Are Brother and Sister. Spring Saturday Morning by Arnold Adolph Legs into overalls, feet into socks, toes finding their places. I pull my boots on and buckle my rain slicker all the way. I am ready with my black rubber hat. I do a monster walk outside into the mud. My guest today is Carolyn Star Rose, author of the middle grade novel Jasper and the Riddle of Riley's Minds, the picture book Ride on Will Cody, and coming in 2020, the middle grade historical novel Miraculous. In addition, she offers her critique services through writing one-on-one. You can find Carolyn's website at carolynstarrose.com. Thank you for joining me today, Carolyn. Thank you so much for having me. Now, as I mentioned, you your two most recent books, uh, Jasper and the Riddle of Riley's Minds and Ride on Will Cody, have come out recently. Can you talk a little bit about those two books? Absolutely. So Jasper is a historical fiction, and it's my first attempt at prose. My other two historical novels were verse novels. And it's also my first book with a boy protagonist. And Jasper is modeled on Huckleberry Finn, which is was a really kind of fun character to get to play with. And the story uh, is based on, or it takes place during the Klondike Gold Rush, 1897, when gold was discovered in the Klondike territory in uh, Canada. The boys in my story come from a broken home. They have been working, saving money for years to get away. And when Jasper's older brother, Mel, comes home with a newspaper, finding out that there's this gold that's been discovered, they decide they're going to get away. Or actually, Jasper thinks... What his brother is saying is they're both going to go away to get this gold together. But his brother Mel leaves without him. So Jasper follows along. He becomes a stowaway on a boat. And on his way to the Klondike, he hears a story about this old coot named One-Eyed Riley, who has left his mind worth millions to the first person who can find it. He's created five clues that are all riddles and the first person to first locate the clues and then solve the riddles gets to keep the mine. And 11 year old Jasper is confident he and Mel are going to be the two that will find it. And the right on Will Cody. Yes. That's also historical fiction based on uh, young Buffalo Bill. According to legend, he claimed that uh, when he was a boy, he said when he was 15, he rode for the Pony Express. Actually, he claimed he rode for it when he was 14, and then he went home for a time. And then when he was 15, he said he rode for the Pony Express again. Now, historians think this is probably a fabrication. But (laughs) according 
to Buffalo Bill. He said that his ride, not only did he ride for the Pony Express, but he claimed he had the third longest ride in Pony Express history. A ride that that covered 322 miles, required 21 horses, and took, I want to say, 22 hours and 40 minutes, if I remember correctly. And a typical ride for a Pony Express rider would have been 70 mi- 75 miles in one day. That would have been an exhausting trip. So to cover 322 miles nonstop is a pretty remarkable thing. Now, these two books, as well as the one that's coming out soon, they're uh, historical fiction. And I'm wondering, uh, what is the process for you in preparing to write these books, the research and other means that you do to get ready? I often will start with something that makes me curious. I, I'm not one of those people who's just overflowing with ideas and, and worries that you know someday I'm going to die before I've written all the books that I want to write. A lot of times I don't realize I've been putting down these layers in my mind for years. It's almost like uh, geology, like the layers of the earth just piling one on top of the other until I start to find something that makes me curious. In the case of Jasper, I had been working on my first novel, uh, Maybe, which is a story that takes place on the Kansas frontier. And I was reading really broadly at first. And my mother uh, handed me a book that she owned about the, um, what was it called? I think it was called Alaskan Women of the Frontier or something along those lines. And it had nothing to do with what I was researching at the time, except it was the frontier, the last frontier, as we call Alaska. But that was the first time I really knew uh, or learned much anything about the Klondike Gold Rush. And I was fascinated. And so it kind of was a seed planted in the back of my mind. Uh, A few years after that, my boys asked if I would ever write a book about a boy because my first two novels were about girls. And so that was another thing that was in my mind. And then the third thing that came to me was uh, something very interesting that was happening locally at the time. There was a man named Forrest Finn who lives in Santa Fe, which is about 60 miles north of where I live in Albuquerque, a millionaire, an eccentric millionaire, who maybe it was around 2012 created this very strange poem and he claims that he has buried treasure and it's you know rubies and diamonds and these sorts of things somewhere in the Rockies north of Santa Fe and south of the Canadian border the first person to solve his his treasure map poem can keep the treasure which is very much like my character one-eyed Riley and so these things kind of converge for me this really interesting setting my children asking me to write a story about a boy and then this local almost fantastic idea of uh, this uh, this treasure out there just waiting for somebody to find and so that was the starting place so after those things come together I spend it can be six to nine months just researching I have a really hard time plotting. Plotting alludes me to this day. I don't understand it until the very, very, very end of a story as it's all coming together for me. So I work on kind of learning as much as I can, and then questions start to arise. And from there, the story starts to grow. Now, as I mentioned, you have this book coming out in 2020, Miraculous. I don't know if it is a work in progress or something completed, but can you tell us a little bit about it? I can. It is a work in progress. This is the first book I've ever sold on proposal. So I am still drafting at this point. And I'm about a third of the way through at this point in time. But just like my other stories, uh, this became this this kind of sprang out of something um, that just was a really interesting moment. In 2000, 
13, I want to say, we were on a family and we happened to stop uh, in St. Louis. And just on a whim, we went to a St. Louis museum. I don't even remember what it was called at this point. So we toured the, the museum and there happened to be a talk about frauds and quacks and charlatans uh, while we were there. And so I said, I said to my son and my boys, or my son and my boys, my husband and my boys, um, you know, I'd like to sit through this and I'll, meet, I'll catch up with you a little later. So this was a fascinating discussion about kind of these charismatic people. And it made me think, what would make somebody want to intentionally fool other people in such a awful way? Now, some people truly thought they were being helpful, but others did not believe that to be the case. And so it, it kind of was a, a spark for an idea that, again, there was no idea to begin with at the time, but a layer was put down in the back of my mind. And uh, it was a few years later that I started to play with this idea of a young boy who has been, who was just charmed by this doctor who has come to his town. The doctor has actually healed his sister. Uh, from a fever, and the boy in gratitude is now uh, in the in the man's service and following him to town from town to town. And it's the story of um, how this boy Jack comes to realize this man is not who he thinks he is, and how the town where he is staying at the time responds to this charismatic doctor. Now, along with your um, uh, writing these books, you also have a, a service you offer, the Writing One-on-One. -on -one. If you could talk a little bit about uh, what kind of services you offer through that. Absolutely. So I, I write middle grade and picture books, and so those are the two things that I am happy to read. I don't have a Master of Fine Arts. I would love a degree like that. I think it would be just a really rich experience to be able to study under learned people and have the opportunity to really hone my craft. I take take my my work seriously. I, I spend a lot of time reading and learning and trying to better my work. But the number one way that I have learned as a writer is through the uh, author-editor relationship. It really is like a course, like a, a course that's created just for you because you're working on your own work. And the editor guides you in such a way to better your work and to really show you your strengths, your weaknesses, and how to go deeper and wider. And it really is a remarkable thing. I, I learn so much every time I turn a book back in. Because of that, I thought, you know, this is something I really would like to be able to share with other people. Um, I enjoy reading other people's work and giving feedback. It's something that I both enjoy. I would want to be able to share with other people who are looking for perhaps a step beyond a critique group. Uh, have, maybe they have not yet been published or have not, have not yet signed with an agent. I'm just interested in being another sounding board for people. And I do ask a little bit of, of people who want to work for me or work with me. I do ask first that they fill out a questionnaire so, just so I have a sense of where they are, what they're looking to do, their writing experience up to this point, the manuscript that they're sending, uh, what they see as the strengths and weaknesses of their piece, just so I have a, a sense of where they are and what they would like to, uh, to do with their work so that we can, I can kind of see, um, we can start at the same point together. Now, the book you chose as one of your favorite kids' books is the middle grade novel The Phantom Tollbooth by uh, Norton Juster. And it was originally published in 1961 by Random House, and it's a book that's still in print. Uh, and for readers who either are not familiar with it or haven't had a chance to read it in a while, because they read it as a kid, can you tell uh, sum it up a little bit? I can, and this just makes me smile. I love this book so much. 
So the Phantom Toll Booth is about a boy named Milo who just is not a happy kid. He doesn't enjoy school. Life is really dull. He doesn't understand the need to add turnips to turnips or why he should learn how to spell the word February. And he's just kind of muddling through his life until one day he gets home and discovers there's this strange package in his bedroom with an envelope attached to it that says to Milo, who has plenty of time. Milo opens it up. He discovers it's this purple toll booth of all things. He just so happens to have a little remote car, some sort of car. I guess it it moves on its own in some way that he's able to climb in puts some coins into his toll booth, and he suddenly is whisked away to a place called the Lands Beyond. So it's this classic adventure story with a reluctant hero, because Milo soon discovers that he is there with a quest, whether he wants to be involved or not. In the Lands Beyond, there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of Digitopolis, the kingdom of numbers, ruled by the math magician, and there is Dictionopolis, the uh, kingdom of words ruled by King Azaz from A to Z. These guys are brothers who are now feuding because one believes words are more important than numbers. The other believes numbers are more important than words. They have banished their twin sisters, Rhyme and Reason, to the castle in the air. And while Rhyme and Reason are gone, chaos reigns in the lands beyond. So Milo's quest is to rescue Rhyme and Reason and to restore order to the lands beyond. And it's just, it's a fabulous story. Milo meets friends along the way. There is a watchdog named Talk. There is a humbug who is very full of himself and all sorts of interesting characters as well. And what is it about Milo's character that makes him sort of the ideal person to go through these particular adventures? I think because he is hesitant, like many children, like many of us as adults as well. He's, he's, he's a little unsure. And in the beginning, when you get the sense that he's bored and everything is dull and there's no, nothing that's very interesting, you start to kind of have a sense that perhaps he's a little unsure of himself. And that might be a big part of the problem. Maybe he's uncomfortable in school. Maybe he's never really, uh, he, he doesn't have the confidence that might help him. Um, to see the world in a different light. And so, and I think a lot of ways we can relate to a character like that. There are um, an abundance of characters in this book, apart from Milo. There's the humbug, and like you mentioned, the mathematician, uh, the weatherman, that's yes. spelled W-H-E-T-H-E-R. Yes. Uh, and I'm wondering, is there a one or two that really stand out for you as particular favorite characters? I do like the weatherman because he, you learn that he will tell you whether there is going to be weather or not. Um, they're all very clever. I especially like Chroma the Great. When I read my passage later on, uh, we'll talk about him. He is a conductor, but he does not conduct music. He creates color. He, he, he paints the world, essentially, by leading his symphony. And I just love that idea. This book is just a really rich look into uh, just wonder. It just is a, an opportunity for wonder and for thinking about the world in new ways. And also it's really witty, which is really fun. Now, this is often uh, compared to Alice in Wonderland mm -hmm. uh, as another book. And I was wondering, do you see, is that a fair comparison? Do you see the similarities between those two books? Absolutely. There's, you know, leaving the, the real world for a fantastical world. We have these strange uh, friends that come along the way with the main character. I'm trying to think, what is Alice's quest? 
what is Alice doing in Wonderland? She falls in the... Oh, looking for the white rabbit, basically. That's, that's right. The rabbit has gone through and she's looking for the rabbit. So yes, they both have quests. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can see that. Now, uh, one aspect of the book, you touched upon this, is the constant wordplay. And you talked about this a little bit with the weatherman. I wonder if you talk about that, why this is such an important part of the book, just the constant wordplay that goes throughout uh, the entire book, really. Well, it can be it can be read as a child and enjoyed. It can be read as an adult as, and enjoyed. And I think new things can be discovered all the all the time. I've read the book thirty times. I know that, that sounds ridiculous, but as a former teacher, this is something that I've read with my students a number of times, and I have discovered things later in life that I didn't notice as a kid. But I think it's really. Um, fun. You've got a spelling bee who literally spells the things that he says. There's a man who's named Can Bee who lives on the island of conclusions. And as you go by and if you immediately make it a statement that is um, a, a quick judgment, you suddenly fly through the air and you land on the island of conclusions. You have literally jumped to conclusions. And so it's just a real opportunity to to talk if you're reading this aloud with children about some of the things that you are coming across. There's subtraction stew. The more stew you eat, the hungrier you get. And so these are fun things that you can discuss, but they're also, if you're reading it on your own, things that you can discover along the way on your own, whether you're young, whether you're old. It's just, it's a little bit like, well, I don't know why this came to mind, but The Muppet Show. (laughs) You know how there's so many rich things, you know, for the younger ones, but also as an adult, you can kind of see some things that Jim Henson threw in there uh, for the for the adults to enjoy as well. Milo visits a lot of different places uh, in his journey, in his quest. You mentioned Digitopolis, this land of numbers. There's also the Valley of Sound, which actually doesn't have any sound. And I'm wondering um, if you had a chance to visit one of these places, is there one you would in particular like to go to? Well, you mentioned the Valley of Sound. So something that's really interesting in the Valley of Sound, I think her name is the Sound Keeper. Yes, the Sound Keeper's Fortress. I would love to go there because in the Sound Keeper's Fortress, she has file cabinets and file cabinets and file cabinets of every sound ever created. And you can visually see these sounds. So just like you could, the musicians played color, you can see these sounds. So all these senses are kind of intermingling as well. So you can open the drawer and you can see what a thunderclap might look like. Or the word that you said last Tuesday is filed in a special drawer just for that particular word. So just the idea that every sound ever created and the words, the sounds to come have all been cataloged in a library, that is really amazing to me. Now, I don't want to do too much of a spoiler, but at the end of the book, there's a suggestion. You know, the two kings start fighting again and the way that we suggest it happened at, the, at sort of much earlier. And there's a suggestion that things are soon going to go back to the way they were before. And with that in mind, so nothing may really change. And so with that in mind, what is the real point of Milo's adventures if nothing is actually going to get better? <laughs> Well, again, without too much of a spoiler, I'm just going to throw this out there. I've always thought that the point is for Milo himself, because I, I feel like this toll booth is going to show up in somebody else's bedroom who has plenty of time. And, you know, someone else who doesn't really see the point of learning and the world is a dull place, somebody else who can be enriched by this experience. And it will just kind of go through again with this new character and this new world. And it will be as if it's never happened before. 
As I mentioned earlier, this was uh, first published in 1961, and it's still in print and still in bookstores and still being sold. And that's not true for a lot of books uh, from that time. So what is it about this book that makes it last, that even after all this time, it's still popular and still relevant even today? I think it really talks to what it means to be a human. Uh, just looking at, I was reviewing it before we started our conversation today, and there are lessons that I don't think hit too hard over the head, but things that just make you stop and, and think for a moment. For example, uh, there is there are two different towns. One place is called illusions. One is called reality. Reality, you don't see anything. In illusions, you see these beautiful buildings. But what's happening in the town of reality, people are walking through the streets with their heads down, and they don't even notice what's around them anyway. And doesn't that say so much about who we are so often in our lives to begin with? Uh, you know, we don't even notice what's around us. And if we stop and take a look, there's so much to enjoy. So I just, I, I think it's lasted because of the wonder, because of the wit, and because of the truths that are, that are in the story. Is there a particular passage from the book that you'd like to share? Yes, I would love to share the Chroma the Great passage where Milo gets to see the world through music, or, or I should say, see a symphony color the world. The sun was drooping slowly from sight, and stripes of purple and orange and crimson and gold piled themselves on top of the distant hills. The last shafts of light waited patiently for a flight of wrens to find their way home, and a group of anxious stars had already taken their places. Here we are, cried Alec, and with a sweep of his arm, he pointed toward an enormous symphony orchestra. Isn't it a grand sight? There were at least a thousand musicians ranged in a great arc before them. To the left and right were the violins and cellos, whose bows moved in great waves, and behind them, in numberless profusion, the piccolos, flutes, clarinets, oboes, bassoons, horns, trumpets, trombones, and tubas were all playing at once. At the very rear, so far away that they could hardly be seen, were the percussion instruments. And lastly, in a long line up one side of a steep slope, were the solemn bass fiddles. On a high podium in front stood the conductor, a tall, gaunt man with dark, deep-set eyes, and a thin mouth placed carelessly between his long-pointed nose and his long-pointed chin. He used no baton, but conducted with large, sweeping movements, which seemed to start at his toes and work slowly up through his body and along his slender arms, and finally end at the tips of his graceful fingers. I don't hear any music, said Milo. That's right, said Alec. You don't listen to this concert. You watch it. Now pay attention. As the conductor waved his arms, he molded the air like handfuls of soft clay, and the musicians carefully followed his every direction. What are they playing, asked Hawk, looking up inquisitively at Alec. The sunset, of course. They play it every evening, about this time. They do, said Milo quizzically. Naturally, answered Alec, and they also play morning, noon, and night. And of course, it's morning, noon, or night. Why, there wouldn't be any color in the world unless they played it. Each instrument plays a different one, he explained, and depending, of course, on what season it is and how the weather's to be, the conductor chooses his score and directs the day. But watch, the sun is almost set, and in a moment you can ask Chroma himself. 
The last colors slowly faded from the western sky, and as they did, one by one, the instruments stopped, until only the bass fiddles and their somber, slow movement were left to play the night, and a single set of silver bells brightened the constellations. The conductor let his arms fall limply at his sides and stood quite still as darkness claimed the forest. It was a very beautiful sunset, said Milo, walking to the podium. It should be, was the reply. We've been practicing since the world began. And reaching down, the speaker picked Milo off the ground and set him on the music stand. I'm Chroma the Great, he continued, gesturing broadly with his hands, conductor of color, maestro of pigment, and director of the entire spectrum. Do you play all day long, asked Milo, when he had introduced himself. Ah, yes, all day, every day, he sang out, then pirouetted gracefully around the platform. I rest only at night, and even then, they play on. What would happen if you stopped, asked Milo, who didn't quite believe that color happened that way. See for yourself, roared Chroma, and he raised both hands high over his head. Immediately, the instruments that were playing stopped, and at once, all color vanished. The world looked like an enormous coloring book that had never been used. Everything appeared in simple black outlines, and it looked as if someone with a set of paints the size of a house and a brush as wide could happily stay occupied for hours. Then Kramer lowered his arms. The instruments began again, and the color returned. You see what a dull place the world would be without color, he said, bowing until his chin almost touched the ground. But what pleasure to lead my violins in a serenade of spring green, or hear my trumpets blare out the blue sea and then watch the oboes tint it all in warm yellow sunshine. And rainbows are best of all, and blazing neon signs and taxi cabs with stripes and the soft muted tones of a foggy day. We play them all. As Chroma spoke, Milo sat with his eyes wide open, and Alec, Talk, and the humbug looked on in wonder. Now I really must get some sleep, Chroma yawned. We've had lightning, fireworks, and parades for the last few nights, and I've had to be up to conduct them. But tonight is sure to be quiet. Then putting his large hand on Milo's shoulder, he said, Be a good fellow and watch my orchestra until morning, will you? And be sure to wake me at 5.23 for the sunrise. Good night. Good night. Good night. And with that, Milo, does he wake up at 5.23? You'll have to read to find out. Carolyn, thank you so much for sharing that passage. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me about this book today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me. You can find Carolyn's website at carolynstarrose.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music titled All Together is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art is provided by Creative Pro 180, courtesy of Fiverr, which can be found at www.fiverr.com. You can visit me at jleemott.com or follow me on Twitter at dreamgardensjlm. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. Until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading.